been in a series called The Core, as we've been walking through the core truths of Scripture, and we've been using our statement of faith to do that, to kind of guide us along the way. And today we will be talking about repentance and faith. Big topic, and an important topic. It's a topic you've probably heard something about, or you have an idea of what repentance is. And so we're going to be in two texts today, um, Acts 2, 37 and 38, and then I'm going to spend a significant amount of time also in 2 Corinthians 7, 10. And I'm also going to read from our statement of faith what we believe about repentance and faith. Acts 2, starting in verse 37. Now, when they had heard this, this being the gospel, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then 2 Corinthians 7.10, you can kind of keep your finger in both of those spots. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And then this is from our statement of faith. We believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties brought about in our souls by the Holy Spirit in regeneration. Regeneration is what y'all talked about, what we talked about last week, which results in being deeply convinced of our guilt, danger, and helplessness, and of the way of salvation by Christ. We turn to God with sincere remorse, confession, and supplication for mercy. At the same time, we heartily receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our prophet, priest, and king, and rely on him alone as the only and all-sufficient Savior. Well, I showed up in Central Texas in 2007 as a freshman at Mary Hardin Baylor. And every year they have what is known as Welcome Week. A lot of different universities have something like this, but it's a time for you to get to know the campus, meet some friends, see where you're going to be eating throughout the year. And every year they place us in what is known as family groups. So I don't know if you're familiar with UMHB, but it was kind of a weird thing. Like, they would have leaders for the group, which were typically upperclassmen, and they would call them your dad and mom. And as freshmen, we were their kids, and it was kind of strange. And I'll never forget on that first day of college, right? You walk in, and you're getting to know everybody. And the thing that they wanted to do for us to get to know each other was to share our testimony. I think it was just kind of assumed that since we were at a private Christian school, everyone was a believer. And I'll never forget some of the answers that I heard now, keep in mind, I had only been a believer for a couple years at this point, and so I was an infant in my spiritual maturity. So I'm not saying these answers to make fun of them. I'm included in the bad answers <laughs> that we're giving. But the question is, okay, why don't you go ahead and share your testimony, um, share your story of faith? And one guy said, well, I'm from Dallas, so I'm a Christian, right? <laughs> As if just being from Dallas meant that you were... A believer, another guy said, I grew up in the church. My parents are Christians. My siblings are Christians. So I'm a Christian. I was like, well, okay. Um, and then another person said, well, I haven't really gotten in trouble that much. And I'm like, what? You've never gotten in trouble. So they're like, I'm a good person. So I'm a Christian. And then my answer was, well, I just got baptized. So that means I'm a Christian. And all of those answers, including my own, they're not terrible things, right? But those are things that don't make you a Christian. 
And I'm sure Dallas is a great city. The traffic is awful. But being from Dallas does not make you a believer. Growing up in church does not make you a Christian. Being a good person does not make you a believer. Even being baptized does not make you a Christian. It's a response of the Christian. And what was void in all of those answers, even my own, was an acknowledgement of sin, an understanding of the grace of God, and transformation by the Spirit of God. What lacked in each of our testimonies was repentance. And what we will see today is that the Bible does not let us get away with that. It doesn't. It does not get us, let us get away from the need of repentance, that a real encounter with God does not leave us unchanged. A real encounter with God transforms us. And my fear for many of us as I was praying and thinking this week is that for many of us tend to see repentance in a negative light. See it in a negative way. It's a negative word that we see repentance as this Old Testament angry God instead of the New Testament loving God. It's the God who judges us and does not like us. And you feel like, okay, if the topic today is repentance and faith, then here is where the pastor tells me everything I'm doing wrong, and it's going to be 40 minutes of me just bashing you. And as the church, we have a tendency to see repentance as a bad word, something that we don't usually talk about. And maybe this is just my own experience, but sometimes I feel like we have a hard time understanding biblical repentance simply because practicing repentance means that we're not as perfect as we think we are. Being honest about who we are is not that easy. It's scary. And we live in a culture, especially a church culture, that says you better have it all together before you show up here. You leave the cuss words at home, you leave that sinful pride at home, you leave your struggles at home, and you put on a version of yourself that looks like a Christian. You take all your sin, you put it in a box, and you leave it on your dresser because that stuff doesn't belong here. And if we think of sin as something that we can just hide and then portray a different version of ourselves, and repentance becomes this word that threatens this perfect picture that we want everyone else to see. But repentance is an admission that we aren't perfect, that we don't have our lives under control. It's an admission that we need help and that we are not. Okay, so what happens is that we set these rhythms in our lives where we avoid the topic of repentance altogether. We avoid it because we don't want to deal with it. It's too painful to actually evaluate where we aren't right with God. So when we enter into community with one another, we don't actually talk about the real things in life. Because look, your home group is not a social club. It's not. It's not a fan club. It's not a book club. It's the place where lives are changed. Where you're not just united around common hobbies, you're united around one thing, the gospel. And that's the only thing that matters, that the only thing that unites us is our agree, agreeance that Jesus died for our sins and we need him. At the center of the gospel and at the center of our fellowship with one another is repentance. And what I want to show you today is that repentance is not the boogeyman coming after you. Repentance, man, it's beautiful. It's refreshing. And it should be celebrated among one another. That conversations about our struggles and our faith in Jesus should be common among us. It should be common. 
This idea that we are walking with one another in faith, repenting to our God, repenting to one another, it should be common among us. And how do I know that? You say, okay, you're just saying opinions. Well, no, actually, because repentance was actually the centerpiece, one of the central pieces to Jesus' ministry. In Mark 1, 4, 14 through 15, he says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That all throughout Scripture, there is a connection between repentance and the gospel, between repentance and faith. So if you look at this text, gospel means good news. And in order for something to be good news, it has to invade dark spaces, that something in my life is not right. I am not well. And now good news has come to change that dark space into something that is light giving, repent, and believe in the gospel. Move from that dark space to the light. And so what we see here in this text and in a ton of texts in scripture is that repentance and belief or repentance and faith is connected. The two go hand in hand. That more than likely, if you see one, you see the other, or at least the other is implied. But what's clear in the Bible is that in order for the good news of the gospel to invade the dark space that we find ourselves in, we need to repent. And so the first question we have to ask is, okay, what exactly is repentance? Because I'm sure that many of you have heard it explained in different ways. Is it simply crying to God? Is it regret? Is it sadness? Does it simply mean to just turn away from your sin? What exactly is repentance? And we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 7.10 here because I think it's helpful to explain what repentance is. Paul says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. This is 2 Corinthians 7.10. Leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So here we have two types of grief, two types of sorrow. There is a type of grief or a type of sorrow that leads to repentance and salvation. This type of grief leads to a life without regret, where you don't look back and ask the question, okay, did I make the right decision here? And then you have worldly sorrow that leads to death. So in both cases, there is sorrow of some kind, but one leads to repentance and salvation, and one leads to death. And so the question is, how do you know the difference between godly grief and worldly grief? We're going to look at worldly grief first. Worldly grief only manifests itself horizontally, person to person. It's not spiritual, which meaning, meaning it's not between us and God. It's not vertical, it's only horizontal. And I was thinking about this, I thought of a story uh, from when I was a kid. My mom had this massive grandfather clock, if you know what one of those are. They're really tall, they're really pretty. She had this massive grandfather clock in our garage, and it was beautiful, and she loved it. Like, it was one of her most precious items. And one day, me and my friend Justin, who's basically like a brother to me, we're out shooting BB guns, just having the time of our lives down in South Texas, that's just what we did, and we're shooting our BB guns, and we had this grand idea to get some Coke bottles, put them on the table in the garage, and shoot them. You can guess what happened. We didn't realize that the clock was 20 feet behind the table against the wall, and so when I lined up the shot, I missed, and it hit the glass. But it didn't shatter the glass. It just put a little hole, a little bitty hole in the glass. 
And so I thought I had the grand idea to take some boxes, put it in front of the clock, and no one would ever know, right? Well, moms always find out, right? Because a week later, she walked into my room and she said, Colton, what happened to the clock? And I was like, I don't know. What are you talking about? What clock, right? She said, did you shoot the clock with your BB gun? And I said, no, I still don't know what you're talking about. She said, why is there a BB just sitting in between the glass and the clock? And it hit me, there's a BB in there. I never took the BB out. And immediately I just started crying. I felt so bad. But why did I feel bad? I felt bad because I got caught. Right? I felt bad because it, the clock meant a lot to my mom. But that was just between me and her. It had nothing to do with God. It was purely emotional. And we experience this all the time, right? With a spouse or a friend where we hurt them or we do something or we get caught doing something and it hurts. Can there be snot and tears when you hurt a friend? Yeah. Can, there, can you wail and weep and it be worldly grief? Yes. The problem with worldly grief is that emotions calm down. Emotions calm down, and what happens is you just go back to doing what you were doing. Anyway, the, the next week I shot a bluebird, and my mom got mad again, right? Like, don't tell PETA that, but it's just BB guns were a big part of my childhood. And, um, um, but it's this emotional hurts, but it has nothing to do with God. Worldly grief is passive about sin. There's no change, and there's no transformation. I messed up, so I'll just try to do that less. Here's, here's what worldly grief tries to do. Worldly grief tries to train and control sin rather than acknowledge its destruction and kill it. Like, you ever seen one of those videos where a lion attacks someone and everyone is so surprised that the lion attacks somebody? I'm always blown away by it. Like, it's a lion. You don't control it. It controls you. And worldly grief is trying to attempt to train the lion. It's trying to have control over it. It's a lack of seriousness about the dangers of sin that we can feel bad about it, but that doesn't keep us from playing with it or trying to control it. And just to be completely clear about this, so we're not just talking around the subject, if you know right now that you are currently practicing sin, but you think that because you feel bad about it, then it's okay, then you are practicing worldly grief that leads to death. If you're lying to your spouse about something and you think you can manage it, you think you can control it, if you feel bad about it, but you don't want to confess it because it'll hurt their feelings, or if you have a secret, some kind of lust that manifests itself by looking at certain things on your phone late at night when no one is around, but when you're done, you put that phone down, you feel bad about it, so it's not that big of a deal, that's sorrow that does not lead to repentance. That's worldly, and it leads to death. Worldly sorrow is not trying to kill sin, it's trying to train it. It's trying to get it to abide by our rules and expectations. And just so you know, that's the goal of the enemy. That's the goal of the enemy, to convince you that you have your sin under control, to convince you that it's not that big of a deal, to convince, to conjure up some kind of fantasy that you are in control of this sin and you can continue to enjoy it. In fact, if you're trying to consult, control sin instead of killing it, that's evidence of your affection for that sin and where your heart truly is because you want to hold on to it so badly that you'll lie, you'll cover it up, 
you'll move pieces around in your life to continue to have it. You'll try to do it less, but you, you probably are just doing it in a different way. It's trying to control it. So at the end of the day, there is no gospel. There is no invasion of dark space and worldly grief because that dark space remains. You just hide it better. You might feel bad about it, but the gospel never actually comes. That's worldly grief, and it leads to death. What is godly grief? Godly grief cuts to the heart. It cuts to the heart. It's the kind of grief that transforms. It's the kind of grief that starts vertically. It's sight to see the ugliness of sin and the beauty of the gospel. In Acts 2, Peter's He's speaking to a crowd of mostly Jewish folks, and he begins to lay out the gospel to them. He begins to walk with them through the scriptures. And so I just want to take a look at a sermon for a second, because it's actually incredible. Go um, back to Acts 2, 22. We'll, we'll get to our main verse, but I want to start here with his sermon. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because, listen, this text, it was not possible for him to be held by it. Paul says there's a guy named Jesus, he did mighty works, wonders, and signs. And he goes, you know who I'm talking about. You were there. And he says, this Jesus went to the cross because of the definite plan of God. His crucifixion was not accidental, but God had thought about it beforehand as a way to unite us to him. And he looks at this crowd and he says, you crucified him. You did it. But then he said, but God raised him. <laughs> he didn't stay dead. Pangs of death, that phrase, it communicates this idea of fear, of agony, of suffering. And he says that Jesus loosened it. I love that language. The, the box of agony and the guarantee of death couldn't contain him. He loosened it. And in fact, Peter says it was not possible for him to be held by it. God in the flesh, the power of death could not contain him. Peter says it's impossible for him to be held by it. Death does not conquer the king. He conquers death. And then Peter quotes, uh, quotes from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. He said, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. And then he says in verse 27, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And so Psalm 16, 8 through 11 is a text that points to the resurrection of Jesus. That Peter believes that when David writes, when he writes this, he is not talking about himself, but rather he's talking about Jesus. And we know this because in verse 29, Paul says, brother, or Peter says, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and the tomb is with us today. He says, we can go to David's tomb, and we can see it ourselves. But then he says in verse 30, being therefore a prophet, 
and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did he see his flesh see corruption. So Peter's reasoning is that because David died, the psalm must have been speaking about one of his descendants. And since Jesus is the only one who conquered death and is a descendant of David, he's the promised Messiah whom David foresaw. And then he says this in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. He says we were all there. We saw, we saw him walking through the streets. And he says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's laying out the gospel to them. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He quotes Psalm 110. Everyone would have known this to be talking about the Messiah, that one day the Messiah would return to the Father and be seated with him in the heavens. And so he lays the gospel out to them. How do they respond? Verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. Here's the reality. The word of God under the Spirit's power is surgical. It cuts. It reveals to us why we were created, and it shows us where we have run from our creator, that, that you weren't created to be a liar. You weren't created to be greedy. You weren't created to lose yourself to lust. You were created for the glory of God and the praise of his name. And when you come face to face with the reality that you are not living a life that reflects the why of why you were created, and you begin to feel uneasy or uncomfortable about your sin, never despise that. Never despise that. That's a gift. When God gives you the sight that you need to see Christ's work on the cross, you run as fast as you can to him. Because he's chasing you down, and you're not going to be able to get away from him. Godly grief is the realization that not only have I done something wrong, but I've offended my creator, my God who loves me, my, my God who died on a cross, my God, my God who suffered and took the punishment that I deserved, and he has shown me mercy. It cuts to our hearts. It's the invasion of the gospel into the dark spaces of our lives. Because when that invasion happened, when godly grief happened, there's only one response we can have. And, and they ask Peter, they say, hey, what shall we do? And Peter says, you repent. You repent. Repents. I love the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. The, the son takes his inheritance from his father. He squanders it on prostitutes and lives this lavish lifestyle, and he just makes a mess of his life. He loses all of his money, and he ends up in a pigsty. He's the son of a loving father eating the slop meant for pigs. And then in Luke 15, 17, it says this, but when he came to himself, when he woke up, when he was able to see that he was not living the life that he was created for, I'm eating slop. I'm the son of the father. It's the gift of seeing and understanding who you were created to be. The word of God has this, serves this MRI purpose on our lives. It reveals where we have cancer, where we're broken, where we're sick. 
It reveals our sin before God and the gift of sight. It's the first marker that God gives us the ability to see our sin and the destruction that it causes. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where, where you've asked someone, hey, how can I pray for you? And they're like, oh, I'm good. I think it's, it's tempting to be in a place where it's like, you know, this, this message really, it's, it's for them. This message really isn't for me. It's, they need to hear this. I'm good. Be very careful. 1 John 1, 8 says, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So be very careful. We are all sinners. And if you don't know why God calls you a sinner, then my prayer for you is that his word, the gospel, would cut to your heart, that you would see the first marker of godly grief is sight. God gives us the ability to see how our sin has separated us from him. A second marker of godly grief is real sorrow, that if you truly see your sin, then you will have sorrow, that throughout scripture, you see drastic reactions to sin. Like when, when someone realizes their sin and they're actually repentant about it, there's some drastic reaction, reactions, like Jeremiah beat his thigh, like punched himself in the thigh when he realized, I'm not advocating any of these, by the way, don't go home and do this, um, but Jeremiah beat his thigh, uh, Ezra pulled out his hair, the tax collector in the parable of the tax collectors that Jesus tells, he beats his chest, Isaiah puts on sackcloth and ashes, there's a whole city in Jonah chapter 3 that puts on sackcloth and ashes when they repent. It's the realization that I have sinned against God and I need forgiveness. And I want you to look at a story with me in Luke 7, 36. It'll be on the screen too, but we see this beautiful story of a woman repenting before Jesus. And it's a perfect picture of sorrow. In Luke 36, it says, one of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him and went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So just a little background here. We aren't told why the Pharisee invited Jesus over, but we can tell by the way this Pharisee treats Jesus that he wasn't in need of a savior. If you walk through the whole story, Jesus kind of explains why. Um, It was customary to pour oil on someone's head if they were an honored guest, but Jesus gets no oil from the Pharisee. It was customary to greet someone with a kiss of peace as a sign of friendship, but the Pharisee does not kiss Jesus, it was customary to give someone water for their feet, but Jesus gets no feet. And in doing that, he is showing Jesus that he does not respect him and he isn't welcome in his home. And in the next verse, in verse 37, a woman comes in who is the very opposite of this Pharisee. It says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask. Of ointments. Now that word behold tells us that something out of the ordinary is about to happen. That out of the ordinary is not that she was not invited. All kinds of people of the town would have been gathered at this place. The Pharisee was the teacher of the town, and the teacher of the town has invited the guest rabbi over for a discussion. There was an educational value to this, and there was an entertainment value to this. All the windows would have been open. There would have been people standing in the doorway. There would have been pillows put out for people to sit. So there would have been people 
everywhere. So what's the drama? What's the behold? The drama is not that the woman came into the house. The drama is that this kind of woman came into the house. What is a person like you doing in a place like this? And I want to stop here because I do wonder if, if there are some of you in here who feel like that. What am I doing here? What am I doing in a place like this that you feel the weight of your sin on you? And you fear that everyone else here doesn't see you, but that they only see your sin. I want you to know, and there are many people here who want you to know, you're exactly where you should be. You are welcome in this place. In this story, it's beautiful. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. And so the question is, okay, what does she do? Why is she identified as a sinner? Well, Luke doesn't say, but it usually means um, that it had some kind of sexual connotation to it. So either she was a prostitute or maybe she was just promiscuous. Either way, she has a past and everyone here knows about it and they judge her for it. And then in verse 38, it says, in standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed her feet and anointed them with ointment. So how's she standing behind him? Well, at gatherings like this, there was a banquet table, a small table where you could lay down, you put your elbows on it, and you'd have your feet behind you. And so this girl gets up behind him, and she doesn't say anything. She doesn't bother with worldly pleasantries. She doesn't try to give an explanation for her sin. It's not worldly sorrow. This is godly sorrow. She just starts weeping. Luke uses the word for rain. She doesn't just tear up. And then she unbinds her hair, but Jewish women didn't do that. You only did that if you were with your husband. And she uses her hair, the glory of a Jewish woman, as a rag for Jesus' feet. And then she kisses his feet. The word kiss, it's the word kata phileo. Kata means with and phileo means Love, which, by the way, it's the same word usage that we see in the story of the prodigal son when the father greets his runaway son. So the son comes to himself, and then when he returns to the father, it says the father kissed him, kata, phileo, with love. And then she takes ointment or perfume, and perfume that was once used to lure men is used to honor the son of God. This girl doesn't come to Jesus, and she doesn't try to explain herself. Think about it. This girl, she's more than likely a prostitute. Do you think that she has people that she can blame for the things that she's done? Do you think she has people that she can blame for the things that she's done? Probably. I can only imagine with what we know now about human trafficking, the work that has to be done with women coming out of sexual slavery. This woman probably has been abused and manipulated her entire life and probably could have easily just blamed everybody else for what's going on. I can imagine she felt backed into a corner and helpless. But what does she do? She owns her sin, and she simply worships. With everyone looking at her, everyone judging her, she has one purpose, to worship. And then we get these words from Luke, from Jesus in Luke 7.50. He says this to her. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So when 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, to salvation without regret, I think that's what happened here. Without regret, a 
repentance that leads to peace. Isn't that what you're looking for? (laughs) Peace? Repentance is more than just feeling bad about something. It's more than just feeling bad that you did something. Like you may have heard it said, repentance means to just turn away, specifically to turn away from sin. While, While yes, that's true, it's so much more than that. Repentance is the fruit of faith. Repentance is the fruit of faith, meaning that when God gives you sight to see, he not only gives you sight to see your sin, but he gives you sight to see Jesus and the work of the cross and the atonement that happened there, the grace that happened by the spilling of Jesus' blood. It's the fruit of faith that we go. It's not just moving away from sin, but it's moving towards Jesus, who is ultimately so much better. He is far better. It's the faith that in him you can find forgiveness, that you can find renewal, that you can find restoration. It's, it's returning to your rightful place because of Jesus as his son or daughter. Because when you repent and turn to him and receive him as Lord, he adopts you. And that's where you belong because he has bought you with a price. So don't waste it. Don't waste it on fruitless joys that would just disappear. It's not worth it. So here's a question. If I asked you, have you sinned against God? My suspicion is that most of you would say yes. But the more important question, I think, is how? How have you sinned against him? Like, can you identify the places in your life where you have, or you, maybe you are right now, where you are at odds with God, where you are in disobedience? And then the next question I would ask is, have you confessed that to him? Have you confessed it before God and before God's people? But see, because godly sorrow, it's active. We feel it in our bones, and we begin to move forward towards Christ in action. Psalm 32.5, David, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So remember, worldly grief, solely horizontal. The gr- this grief is vertical with an acknowledgement that some horizontal things have happened. And what's important to understand is that our repentance, it starts with God. And only when we have truly laid ourselves before him can repentance happen among one another. Think about it. David, who is writing this, writing this, he's committed adultery. He's committed adultery. And then he's had that girl's husband killed. So he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. But you're like, yes, but you also sinned against Bathsheba and her husband by committing adultery and then killing her husband. So why doesn't David just acknowledge his sin against Bathsheba and be done with it? Because repentance starts by acknowledging our sin before God first. Because ultimately, that's who you've offended. That's who we have offended. And then it moves out. Then it moves vertical, acknowledging our sin among one another. Psalm 4010, David says, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I've spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from who? The great congregation. So he says, I have not hidden your deliverance. I speak of your faithfulness and how you saved me. I have not concealed your love and your faithfulness 
from the congregation. And specifically, he's talking about how God has delivered him from his sin. Just two verses later, Psalm 40, 12, he says, For evils have encompassed me. Beyond number, my iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head. My heart failed me. And he has hidden none of that from the congregation. And my prayer is that we would be a people that confession of sin Confession of sin before one another, it's common. It's common among us. It's a natural rhythm of our faith family to be honest, to talk about the real things in life. That fear would not motivate us to hide our sin, but that the promise of peace with God and peace with one another would would allow the gospel to invade the dark spaces of our hearts. And we would not be afraid to bring those into the lights. You know, it's really difficult for the enemy to accuse you of something if you're actually fully known. Ever thought about that? Like, to be 99% known is is still unknown. Like, if we only know 99% of you, then we still don't know you. So the question then is, what are you holding back? What are you holding back from the Lord? What are you trying to hide from the Lord, or what are you trying to hide from us? Because David says in Psalm 32, 3, talking about it, he says, he's talking about his sin. He says, when I kept silent... My bones wasted away. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. That you won't feel fully known until you bring all of it into the light before God and God's people. What would it be like to live in such a way when the enemy brings an accusation before you that you are able to say, liar? I know you're a liar because I'm fully known by God and by the people of God. When he tries to confuse you or misguide you or tell you that that you're not lovable or that Christ's blood doesn't cover you, you say, nope, that's not true. I've been fully open to my God. You can't confuse me. You can't attack me. When he calls you a liar and a fake, you say, nope, I'm fully known. And I'm not saying that it's easy. Like, I'm not oblivious. Like, repenting This idea of really being open with God and one another about our sins, it takes faith, faith that only God can give. And it could be painful before it gets better, but that pain is worth it, the movement towards Jesus. What we don't realize is that he's already moved towards us. Like, he's going to grab us. But in our souls, that we make the decision to move towards him and to say, yes, I believe you. I believe that you are my father. I believe that you did save me. I believe that grace is better, and I will throw away all the sin. I won't try to train my sin, to control my sin, to hide my sin. I'm going to kill it, because you're so much better. 